writes, I am really looking forward to this important, informative show today, and I also plan to have fun along the way. It is a treat and pleasure to sit down with Doug Haynes, UCI Vice Provost for Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I repeat, Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I know sometimes it's hard to get your head around some of these broad terms, and many times people can feel intimidated by what sometimes seems like a minefield of controversy. I am pleased to have Doug here today. Please give a warm, enthusiastic cyber welcome to Vice Provost Doug Haynes. Welcome, Doug. How are you today? Uh, Kevin, I'm fine, and I want to thank you and your listeners for having me this time. Great. The first question, Doug, is probably the easiest question of the day. I've taken a poll. No one can really give an answer to what is the difference between a vice provost and a vice chancellor. Could you set the record straight? I will do my best. Uh, A vice chancellor is a member of the senior leadership that has significant oversight over large activities on campus that are outward-looking as well as inward-looking. So, for example, there's a vice chancellor of students that's responsible for the student experience of our undergraduates. So that's a very large division. It also interacts, the position interacts with the wider public through our outreach and admissions. So a shorthand is the chancellor and vice chancellors they are somewhat outward-facing. By contrast, the vice provosts are more inward-facing and work in relationship to our academic programs, student success, our majors and minors, our master's degrees and doctoral degree programs. And so it's about the core functions of the university, research and teaching. And that's what vice provost Pretty much, that's the oversight. So the vice means I report to our provost, Mm -hmm. but as part of the provost's office, I'm inward-facing. Gotcha. As vice provost for academic equity, diversity, and inclusion, are there actually three different offices, or is it all in one? You know, sometimes I see office of inclusion, or, you know, is there a distinction, or is it just a convenient simplification? I think that's a really good question. And I need to point out that UCI is unusual in the United States. Precisely in combining in one office within the vice provost domain, equity, diversity, inclusion. Those terms mean very real things. Equity refers to creating a climate where people feel affirmed and supported so that they can do their best work while they're here. That includes our students, undergraduates and graduate students, our postdocs, and of course, our faculty. Diversity refers to compositional diversity. That is to say, African-American, Asian-American, Chicano, Latino, uh, Native American, Pacific Islander, even whites. The purpose of paying attention to it is that in the history of the United States, in higher education in particular, there have been decades, if not centuries, of de facto, if not de jure, hurdles and obstacles, particularly for people of color, to participate in higher education. And so what we try to do in the office is to ensure that we have a fair, open process and really make a concerted effort to enable people to learn more about how to participate in our academic programs. And the third leg of the office is inclusion. 
It's important to remember you can have a diverse organization, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people feel that they're a part of something, Mm -hmm. that they belong. And that's true for any organization, not just for a university. And so the office is about making UCI self-conscious, intentional, and purposeful about defining excellence by the totality of people we include in our academic mission. Excellent. How do we go about doing that? How does your office go about doing that? Certainly, it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can just elaborate on that and maybe point out some specific programs. Sure. That's another good question. And I want to remind you and 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 the listeners that the attention to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion is an ongoing and evolving process, particularly in the United States, where after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, public institutions could no longer discriminate, even though they received federal tax dollars. However, the real challenge after the Civil Rights Act was how do you integrate institutions that historically have had no or very few people of color? And the task has been since the 1964 Civil Rights Act is not only integration to grow diversity, but also to create an environment where people feel that they can do their best work in an atmosphere where they're not subject to various forms of explicit or implicit bias. I think that the office, this office, is unique in that it is inward focused and it does four things. We provide campus accountability about equity, diversity, inclusion. So those terms aren't just vague concepts. They actually relate to real measurable conditions for the success of human beings at UCI. Second, we also coordinate and provide education, briefing, and training. It's important to remember that even though we live in a very diverse society, research shows that a significant percentage of Americans live in residentially homogenous communities. We don't go to church together that often. And so you have to remember that we have to be very intentional about equipping people with knowledge, information, research, best practices about things like implicit bias, right? Mm -hmm. The schemas in our brain that allow us to unconsciously sort people according to preconceived ideas. Mm. We all are subject to implicit bias, no matter how well-intentioned we are. But as soon as we get aware of it, we're able to interrupt those unconscious biases from having an effect on how we interact with people. The third foci of the office is responsive research. Research is particularly important because we need to understand how are we doing, right? Mm -hmm. Here's an example. Most people inhabit their workspaces and places that they live, and they get a sense of their reality from that experience. However, there's been some fascinating research that shows that when you ask people at a corporation, if it's a diverse corporation, members of dominant groups take into account not just who is their peer, who's on the the C-suite, but also the custodial class. And they'll think it's a very diverse place, even though 80% of the workforce is in custodial work. 
right? They don't think about the fact of the relative absence, let's say, of women in the executive suite. Mm. Or if they're women executives, they're in human resources and not in marketing, mm. right? Mm. So what we do in our responsive research is collect data. Mm. Data that compares the available pool of individuals with the requisite degree, a PhD, and whether or not those individuals are applying to our jobs, right? We don't tell any department who to hire, but we share data. We point out that yes, believe it or not, there are African-American women physicists in the United States of America, right? Mm -hmm. And so one can't simply say there aren't any. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have to think about how do we connect with this talent pool? It might require being a bit more purposeful, intentional. We share data about our students, about how they're progressing through their courses, to understand to what extent are we serving them well. You can't determine your effectiveness if you don't know what your tr constitutes effectiveness or if you don't have some type of quantitative measure of it. Mm. Makes mm. a big difference. So those are some examples. Mm. And it's important to remember, we may be diverse, but that doesn't mean we're truly representative. Mm -hmm. And the final leg, the fourth foci of the Office of Inclusive Excellence is strategic partners and initiatives. And that can mean reaching out to our community colleges, our campuses in the CSU system, Hispanic-serving institutions. In fact, UCI has just been designated a Hispanic-serving institution by the federal government, which means that 25% of our undergraduates are Latino. Now, for some of your listeners, that might be a surprise, but remember, 40% of the population of Orange County are Latino, mm -hmm. right? Close to f a little more than 40% statewide. And I think that it's important to remember that we want to be sure, as a public research institution, that we are opening up our portals to talented people, and we want to remove hurdles to their participation, and so it's pretty remarkable that nearly a third of our undergraduates are Pell eligible. That's a proxy for being low income. And I s mentioned these examples to illustrate that talent comes in many forms. And these young people are high achieving. They have the grades, the test scores, the leadership experience, the drive, the dedication, the grit. And we want to be sure that there are no artificial hurdles to their participation. And so those are some examples of the four foci of the office that really try to sort of ensure that we are enabling people to expect equity, support diversity, and practice inclusion. Got it. Where do we need to improve? Do you see right now specific areas at UCI that where we need to improve? Is there focus? I, I think that the, the short answer is there are many areas in which we've improved, but there are as many areas in which we need to improve. And in saying that, it's important to remember that any successful organization or enterprise, whether it's an elite public research university like UCI, a corporation, or any other institution, 
you need to be a learning organization. You need to learn about the people you serve. You can't simply be on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And so when we are looking at student success, time to degree, what we're trying to understand is how can we better serve our students so that all graduate in four years, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, UCI um, is way above the national average when it comes to graduation rate, way above the national average. But 86% is really good, but we want 100%, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There are many reasons why students graduate in more than four years. It could be access to funds. We provide tuition-free education for individuals from families that make less than $80,000 a year, right? So that's one area. Another area is we want to access the talent pool, and that refers to our faculty hiring. You know, women now comprise 36% of the faculty at UCI. Now, to some folks, that might not mean much, but you need to remember that before Title IX in 1972, women faced enormous barriers, not just hurdles, barriers to participation in higher education, even in public institutions for which their parents pay taxes. Right? And so when we look at the data of, let's say, women in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, and computer science, you know, we want to be sure that we're tapping in to that robust talent that's out there, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why we measure our performance in our hiring against national availability, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one area where we need to do more work. But I want to give an example of where we have a recent success, and that is recruiting Dr. Amawa Shields. Dr. Shields is the first and I believe only African-American female astrophysicists ever hired in the University of California system. Now, let that settle in for a minute. For over 150 years or more, since the University of California was established in 1868, no student has had the opportunity to have a physics class with a black woman as a ladder rank faculty member. Now, that might not seem much to a lot of people, mm -hmm. but physics is regarded as the jewel of the sciences, mm -hmm. as a field that sort of only the anointed can truly understand, that you have to be Einstein in order to get it. Mm -hmm. And it's important to remember, too, that for centuries, women were represented, particularly black women, were represented as the antithesis of genius, mm. right? This is 2017. Mm -hmm. And UCI succeeded in making this appointment of a very accomplished early career scientist that literally has made history. Thank you. Please excuse me for a moment, Doug. If you joined us late today, I'm speaking with Vice Provost for Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Doug Haynes. Doug received his Ph.D. from UC Berkeley and originally came to UCI as a history professor. 
His research focuses on modern Britain. He sees rather than viewing race as marginal to the history of medicine in the U.S., he argues that it was and remains central to the development of American medicine. Doug, I know this is a little off topic, but can you, maybe it's not. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. I think that in most of my research, and my research looks at the development of the medical profession in the United Kingdom, in other words, Britain, but I also do research on the development of the modern medical profession in the United States. And one thing that's striking about both of these professions is the use of barriers of exclusion in order to produce the social representative of that profession. So, for example, many of you, and I will date myself, remember Dacus Welby, MD. <laughs> I'm the, with you. <laughs> the folksy LA-based single practitioner who had Diane Carroll as his, well, that's a different story. Uh, <laughs> and he represented American medicine in 1960. And for many people, that seemed normal, that all doctors, a significant majority of them, were white and male, right? Mm -hmm. But what I study is how that normality is produced, and it's produced through the sort of system of medical education. It's produced by a system, at least up until, I would say, the 1970s, that really selected against non-white individuals from going to medical colleges and schools outside of historically black colleges and universities. Mm. Right? And so you can imagine how over time the overwhelming representation of doctors were white and male, mm. in large part because medical schools in the United States excluded African Americans or had a hard quota. They also excluded women or had a hard quota for them. This process happens in the United Kingdom as well. But the difference is, as Britain expanded its empire, it established medical schools. And that's where doctors of color were produced. Mm. But those doctors were prohibited from practicing medicine in the United Kingdom. Mm. And so one of the pleasures, fascinations, and I think responsibilities of my research is to unpack what we think is normal and to point out that what is normal is situated within hierarchies of power. Mm. And the hard part, Kevin, the real hard part is to understand how to see what is normal. For me, it took going to Pomona College as an undergraduate then going to Berkeley for my PhD and learning an awful lot about the history of power in the United Kingdom and its empire, as well as the United States, so that I can basically, in three minutes, summarize what's taken me close to 30 years. Mm. You sound, at times, more like a social scientist than a historian. There must be overlaps. I, why do you say that? Well, because these issues seem to be socially norms that are recorded in history. So it kind of defines what it's all about. Well, the beauty about being a historian is that it's a wonderful merger of humanistic inquiry 
as well as social science exploration. And so history in some universities is a social scientist. And other institutions like UCI, it's in the humanities. And it's wonderful because it's situated in the humanities at UCI. It's because I'm able to explore and build connections with other fields of inquiry. Hmm. Where is the, do you feel resistance? You know, as you, from what I hear is as you eloquently share your passion and what you think is important is there hard resistance is there silent resistance you know what where's the rub you know as i listen to you i'm like this makes a lot of sense i think that the resistance i i wouldn't characterize it initially as is resistance i think that one way to approach issues around equity diversity inclusion is fundamentally it's about power relations. Mm. I think most people, myself included, are loath to imagine that they exercise power in ways that impair people, that thwart people. And so part of the task is educational, mm -hmm. that you need to work with people and walk with people to sort of unpack our role in these larger structures. So, for example, one point of resistance that is still present but is diminishing is this idea that because of the passage of Proposition 209 by California voters in 1996 that prohibits the use of race, gender, national origin in either admissions or hiring in the University of California, that our hands are tied behind our backs, that in the absence of affirmative action, people of goodwill can't really affect change. Right? But the truth of the matter, Kevin, there was no golden age for underrepresented minorities. There was a recent article in the, LA T in the New York Times this week that just documented the glacial pace of change, whether it's and students, undergraduates at public institutions or private institutions. And so what I'm driving at is that it's important to, to in, meet people where they are, mm -hmm. engage them with facts, help them see. But Kevin, they have to be at a place where they're open to that. Part of this process involves dealing with the layers of interior explanations that are excuses, mm -hmm. that there aren't any. But even if you point out that, yes, there are Chicana scientists, that there is a wonderful body of Chicano literature, the next level of resistance is well, it'd be really difficult to recruit this person because there's so few and more affluent, well-endowed institutions will just take them away. Even if you prove, demonstrate, that coming to a public institution, whether UCLA or UCI or San Diego, is something that a highly talented, well-trained Chicano, Chicana scholar would like, there's yet another level of resistance. Right? They won't stay. 
because their numbers are so few. And instead of thinking about how do I create a culture where people want to stay, instead that line of thinking puts the burden, the onus on that individual to make all the adjustments. Mm. And so these are just some examples. Mm -hmm. And these are examples not of fire-breathing white supremacists. These aren't the rationales of neo-Nazis. These aren't the views of white nationalists. These are the views of well-meaning people mm-hmm. who see themselves as well-meaning, even progressive, highly educated. Mm-hmm. But even this subset of people need to be at a place to interrogate their own biases. Mm-hmm. And so part of my work involves accountability, education and training, responsive research, strategic partnerships to enable people both to sort of participate in inclusive excellence. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think that there's a lot of positive momentum. Right? Professor Haynes, Dr. Haynes, Vice Provost, thank you so much for being here today. You have represented what UCI is trying to do, and the work is not done yet, Mm -hmm. and you have done it exceptionally well. I want to commend you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I told you before you came here, or before we started the interview, that sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't, (laughs) and you have succeeded in helping me to make, it makes a lot more sense to me now. And I feel like I have a much clearer grasp of what's being worked on at UCI. So I I thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you, Kevin, and your listeners for having me.